Hey everyone, this is Chad. I'm really thankful you're listening to this sermon, a sermon that I did not preach. It seems that the topic of God's wrath is one many wonder about, and I'm thankful that Matt, our teaching ministry leader, was willing to cover it. For many, the anger of God is one of the biggest challenges and or hangups of faith. People can't grasp why God seems so angry at points in the Bible, why God would be mad at them, or maybe most, why God would send people to hell. Answering these difficult questions is at the heart of this series. Because of its importance, we would really appreciate if you would consider sharing these sermons if you find them to be helpful or valuable. If you would post these sermons on Facebook or Twitter or wherever else, it could be life-changing. Many people need to hear what Matt says in this series, and your sharing could be the way that that happens. Also, if you're listening to this on a podcast host, would you consider leaving a review? This helps our sermons be heard by more people, and we think that's really important. Thanks again for listening. I hope Matt's sermon will help you learn and live more fully for Jesus. Well, it has been a fun four weeks. This is my last week. Uh, So thank you to my brother-in-law, Pastor Chad Harms, for letting me speak. Um, I would have never trusted him to do the same, so... It's really quite nice. Uh, That's not true. Um, So we've talked about God's wrath, and uh, this was a good subject for me personally to go over um, because I have struggled with the idea of of God's wrath in my own life, and we'll go over that uh, in a little bit. But just a recap of what we've already talked about, we talked about how God's wrath in many ways is just an expression of His love, that God's wrath helps us remember the details, and that God's wrath is real and actual, and it manifests ultimately in something called hell, and we can't shy away from that. Um, And right now, I want to talk about a different aspect of uh, hell or wrath, Um, and I'll start with with two stories, two stories. Um, The first is... um, when I was a manager of membership marketing at Costco for a little bit, uh, it wasn't very long that I was over in that department as the manager, but I remember all of the crazy things. It was always crazy there, and it was easy. It really was an easy job because if someone brought in literally anything, the answer was yes, right? Because uh, in, in membership, they, they handle the returns, and it was, you know, someone brought in this five-year-old air conditioner, and I say, yes, take care of the member, return it. Someone was stranded on an island for 12 years with nothing but Kirkland Signature underwear, and now they want to return them. I say, yes, take them back. This item, I'm not sure it's a Costco item, looks like it was purchased at Goodwill, still has the tag on. I say, do we have anything similar? Yes, do it. It was easy, because that's just the Costco way. But there was one thing that that bugged me, and it's when members would come in and treat my employees incredibly poorly. You can talk to me like that. I can take it. It's perfectly fine. But someone 
uh, who is always smiling and it's always nice and I could see that they're smiling, but behind that smile they were holding back tears. Gets me angry. But I remember one particular instance where uh, I'm getting called over by somebody else who's watching this situation of this guy who was just berating this girl. She's a very sweet girl, and he's just like, are you an idiot? This is all your fault. You're doing this. What's going on? Fix it, fix it, fix it. And she's saying, I'm trying, sir. I'm, I'm really trying. I'm looking into what happened. And basically, he renewed his membership, and it only worked for about 14 days, and then it stopped working. And it was all her fault. She must have done something to cause his membership to quit working. And so he is just berating her. And I say, I'm going to handle this situation. And he's still looking at her and he's still berating her. And I say, sir, you need to look at me right now. You need to look at me. And I, I, tell, I tell her, we'll call her Jenny. I say, Jenny, you can, you can walk away. I said, sir, that girl right there is going to go walk into that room and she's going to cry because of how mean you have been. You need to look at me, and you need to treat me as the solution, not the problem, or all you're going to have is problems. And he, you could, he was mumbling. You could tell he was still mad, that anger was percolating, wanting to boil, but I wouldn't handle it. It wouldn't work. And I'd say, sir, he, she couldn't see what I can see, and it looks like your check didn't go through. So your renewal, we let go through until we realized that it was a bad check. Looks like it was your fault. I was so happy. <laughs> so happy. And I say, but I can take care of it. We can fix it right here. We just, we just need you to pay for your membership. That's it. And we take care of it, and you could tell he was kind of mad. And then Maybe two hours later, I see him walking back in, and I'm thinking, oh, man. It's like some people just don't know how to let it go. And he walks up, and he's going to, what did I call her? Jenny. He walks up to Jenny, and, and I'm, I'm starting to walk over like, okay, come on. What's going on? And then I hear it, and he's saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I should never treat somebody like that. I just got angry, and it's no excuse. And I couldn't get through my day without coming in here and saying, I'm sorry. And I thought, man, that's good news. That's great news. But we can't appreciate that good news if we didn't know the whole story the bad news. I remember my uh, whole family, and including Ashley, we were going to the East Coast to visit our grandparents. Something got messed up with our flights. And they said, well, we can't fit all of you. And that was kind of lame. In fact, we could fit everybody except for one person. And my dad, being the martyr of the family, said, I'll stay back. Right? I'll stay back and I'll catch the, the plane that they're going to line up for us. And I said, well, wait a, minute, wait a minute. No one should be alone. 
I'll go with you. And they're like, okay, the plane is leaving in five minutes, and it's across the airport. Well, okay, like, geez, thanks for the warning. So we're literally running through the airport. And I see my dad. My dad's a swimmer. He's not a runner. If I was in the ocean, I'd, after 15 minutes, be like, Dad, you got to carry me. <laughs> but, you know, he's, he's struggling. He's got his bag. And I look over at him, and I say, Dad, give me your bag. Give me your bag. So he gives me his bag because I want to carry it and make it easier. And when we got there, they're like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't leave for 45 minutes. <laughs> I'm like, oh, geez, Louise. But in that, in that moment... To see my dad running and running side by side with him and looking at him and saying, I want to make this easier for you, I realized, you know what? I love my dad so much, I would, I would do anything for him, and I know that he would do anything for me. And that bad news helped me really see and appreciate the good news of the love that, that I share with my father. And I want to read this passage. It's the passage I'm going to be going over. It's Romans 5, 6 through 9. It says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? And in this passage, we focus a lot on the good news because it is good news. That we are saved and that God does indeed love us. But one of the things I taught my students who are learning a lot about apologetics or the philosophy of theological inquiry, uh, is that there's something really, really fascinating about the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis, and that it talks about them not eating from the tree of the knowledge of what? Not of evil, but of good and evil. And it's because even though God, in His, in his perspective, could see that it was good, they couldn't. They just didn't have the perspective. Because in many ways, good to us is only known by contrast. Once we see and experience the bad, we can feel and know and appreciate the good. And the Bible has this all throughout. I mean, we'll never know compassion if we don't know what suffering is. We'll never know what good is if we don't know what evil is. In, this, in the gospel, or the Bible has this element when it comes to the gospel. It literally means good news. But how can we bring this into the world, the good news, if people aren't even familiar with the bad news? That they're under the wrath of God and His holy judgment. That the wages of sin is death, and that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If they don't understand this concept, they can never appreciate and understand the full measure of the gospel, the good news. And when I, when I put my son down to sleep, uh, he has started to do this uh, very funny thing. 
I will say, Rogan, do you want me to read you a story? And I go and I start to grab a book and he comes over and he pushes the book down. He holds it down. And he says, Daddy, tell me a story with your mouth. And that's, that's his way of saying that he wants me only to use the words of my mouth. I, he doesn't want me to read it. In other words, he just wants me to make it up. So I do, and we go on all kinds of adventures, or he does with monsters and things like that. But one of the things that I found out about really a, a fundamentally important thing when it comes to good storytelling is that it just doesn't work if all you ever give is the good news. But I say, Rogan is walking down the street, and he's smiling, and then he sees a rainbow. You say, but, but Daddy, then the rainbow hits me. What do you mean the rainbow hits you? He hits me, and I fall down. Right? He, needs, he needs something, and then he needs to recover from it and be the victor. He needs that bad news so that he can have the good news. That's good storytelling, and he already sees it, and he knows it. If I don't say anything bad, he's going to tell me, say it again, but this time I fall down because the rainbow tries to hit me, <laughs> something like that. Really, it's he, him telling me how to tell the story. But stories just aren't as strong, just not as potent if we lose that crucial element. And so I have, I have a few pictures I want to show if we can get them up. We'll, we'll show the first. So this is a man just holding an old man. It's kind of interesting. So we'll go to the next one. Yeah, this is a police officer who's just holding a kid. It's kind of cool. Go to the next one. This, oh yeah, this, this guy's holding a woman who's kind of dirty. And this is a dog sitting down. I just wanted to show you those pictures. It's kind of cool. I mean, is, are they good pictures? Are they good news? I couldn't possibly have you appreciate the good news of this picture if I didn't tell you the bad news. This old man's house is on fire. He can't get out. He's stuck in bed. And this guy who just happens to be walking by says, there's got to be someone in there. And he rushes in and he carries the old man out. That is good news. It's good news. This man right here saved this, this uh, girl from a uh, building fire. And later, after he retired and she was graduating from high school, she invited him to the graduation and they reunited as the man who saved her life. That's good news. It's good news. The next picture, this is a retired uh, um, a war vet who is carrying this woman because he ran into the rubble, rubble after the uh, towers had fallen at 9-11 and carried this woman out and saved her life. That is good news. This picture of a dog sitting down is a dog that for the past six years has returned to its owner's grave. And he lays on that grave all day and he goes home and does the same thing the next day. His name is Captain. And you think that's good news. But you can't appreciate it. You can't understand its full measure if you don't understand the bad news. 
It's weird for me to say that I want to tell you the bad news of the gospel. It's like jumbo shrimp. It's an oxymoron. But there is a bad news there. It has significant relevance to God's judgment because if we do not protect a good understanding of God's wrath, we lose the bad news. And if we lose the bad news, we lose the good news. We lose the gospel. I had nothing to tell you that was good about those pictures if I couldn't tell you the bad news. In the same way, the gospel means nothing if you don't know the bad news. And years ago, I, I, I made peace, or, so to speak, with the idea of God's wrath. My, my dad has always been the soundboard for me theologically. When I'm like, Dad, I have this idea, and I say it to him, he's like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, and here's why. And I say, thank you. I needed to hear it. Thank you. Uh, I've had some weird ones. And uh, with God's wrath, I, I struggled with it. And I hope that doesn't seem weird to you. But I, the idea of a God who sends people to hell, the, the very idea I struggled with and I wrestled with it. Then it was when I was studying the Garden of Gethsemane. And that, you know, that's where Jesus... He's at the Garden of Gethsemane. It's almost just right before he's about to make that ultimate sacrifice. He's literally sweating blood. And he says, God, I don't want to do this. This is hard for me. But I'll do it if I really need to. If that's what you want, God, I'll do it. And here is Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane saying that he will do the most costly thing for us. And I, I, I found that if you got rid of the idea of hell and wrath, that you actually have a less loving God. If you don't believe in wrath and hell, it, it, it trivializes what Jesus has done. If you get rid of a God who has wrath and hell, you have a God who sort of just loves us in general. But that's not as loving as the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus Christ who loves us with a costly love. It cost him something. And I remember really identifying this with this years later when I was studying for my master's degree, in particular when I, when I was writing my master's thesis, which was on uh, Trinitarian hypothesizing or the Trinity. And so I wanted to, to find out all the different theories of making the Trinity work. And I, I looked everywhere on the Trinity and what they call the hypostatic union, which is Jesus being both divine and human. And I came across this really cool illustration. Uh, and it was that Superman is a, a creative sort of mythological archetype of Jesus Christ. And I thought it was fantastic, it was cool sort of using this story because it's, it's also one of the reasons I love Jesus so much and that he was a fantastic storyteller. In fact, I've, I've tried to, to live that in my own life. I said, man, when Jesus tells stories, it works. I want to do that. I want to be like that. You know, he tells the story of the prodigal son. It's, it's fiction. It's these, these things called parables. 
But he says, this son left his father, he took his inheritance, and he went into the world, and he got lost. He got tarnished. He got broken. He had nothing left. And he went back realizing that he didn't deserve anything. All he wanted was scraps and a place to sleep. He went back knowing that he was tarnished and broken and undeserving. And his father ran to him. And Jesus said, that's how you are spiritually. You're lost and you're broken and you're tarnished. And if you come, not knowing you deserve it, but knowing you don't deserve it, God will run to you. He said, this story is that spiritual reality. I thought, man, this is great storytelling. I love it. I love the parables of Jesus. I love Jesus as a storyteller. I want to be like that. And so when I saw this sort of uh, Superman illustration, I thought, wow, this is actually a great story. When I, I, I didn't find a way of, of fitting it into my <laughs> master's thesis, uh, but I, I remembered it nonetheless. And here's kind of the story. And you can, you can tell me if you see it too. So, uh, and, and most of you know the story, but once long ago there was a rocket ship that launched from a doomed planet called Krypton. Krypton was literally imploding. And it dove out of the sky and landed on the humble property of two people, Jonathan and Martha Kent, husband and wife. And the ship held something. They were afraid to get out of their Ford pickup at first, but they finally did, and they went to this ship, and they found a tiny infant. And, of course, Superman's Kryptonian father's name was Jor-El, and Superman's real name is Kal-El. But El, in Hebrew, means God. It's, It's a name for God. And this is probably not a coincidence, because Superman was written originally by two Jewish boys out of Ohio. And uh, it, was, it was Superman's father, Jor-El, that gave Superman all of his powers and abilities that were beyond that of mortal men. But it was Jonathan and Martha who would adopt him, raise him as their own son, and instill in him his humanity. And, and there's that picture of, of Martha scooping him up into his into her arms, and what's interesting is that Martha, in the original comics, her name was Mary, and coincidentally, Jonathan, his middle name is Joseph, okay? Are you tracking? But they adopted their son and named him Clark Kent, and they raised him in a small town in the middle of nowhere where he would learn to work with his hands on his father's farm. His father, father Jonathan, would would later die in his teen years. And it wouldn't be until Clark was around 30 years old that he would make his first appearance as Superman. And this dual identity of Clark, Kent, and Superman has become an essential element in the Superman mythology. There's a... uh, I, I... watched reruns uh, of this back in the day, but there's a George Reeves television series. I don't know if any of you remember that. I know the young people won't. Um, But it says, Superman disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. 
And throughout the seven decades of the Superman lore, writers have approached his dual identity in a variety of ways. But here's one mistake that I noticed when, when looking at this story. Is that some, some storytellers tell, think that Kal-El is really Superman and that he only disguises himself as Clark Kent. But the best writers know that he is just as much Clark Kent as he is Superman. And he is just as much Superman as he is Clark Kent. The two are really inseparable. He is fully Superman and fully Clark Kent. Does that sound familiar? Because it should. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is just as human as he is divine. And just as divine as he is human, Jesus is fully God and fully man. It says in the Gospel of John, this is 1-1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later in verse 14, it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now, even though Jesus was sent from above, sent from God, he was raised here on earth in a small town in the middle of nowhere where he would learn to work with his hands in his father's workshop. And just as with Superman, both sides of Jesus' dual identity are essential to his nature. Jesus' humanity is important because it set him apart from the Greek and the Roman gods who were sitting at Mount Olympus looking down at ignorant humans and playing tricks on them. He was different from the god of Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam, or in, in many respects, even that of Judaism. Judaism doesn't see a God who comes down and is human. But the God of Christianity comes down and becomes human. He experienced humanity. And it demonstrates this inconceivable reality that God loves us enough to become one of us. So our infinite God limits himself within human flesh because he loves us. Our limitless Lord limited himself to the literal stretch of an arm because he cared for you and me. The hands that created the universe were blistered by the carpenter's hammer because he loved us enough to become one of us. And, and here's something that I thought was really interesting. As, as, as a young man, Jesus became very familiar with the tools of his father's trade. And how fitting that those very tools would be the things that usher in our salvation. Because with a hammer and nails, he was a carpenter. And with a hammer and nails, he was our Savior. But just like the Superman story, there cannot be a Savior if there is nothing to save you from. There has to be bad news. We don't always do it right. I remember walking to school and seeing those guys with the sandwich boards that said, you're all going to hell, and thinking, there's got to be a better approach, right? There's got to be a better approach. That's 
bad news. But if you only share the bad news, it doesn't work. And if you only share the good news, no one cares. Because they don't know the bad news. They don't know how much they need it. It just doesn't seem all that good. So what's the good news with with Superman? Hey, here's this guy who is strong and powerful and he seems to like us. Well, how do you know he likes you? What has he done? It's only in the bad news that you see the true profundity of what he's done. In Superman, there is a sacrificial passion. And I'm going to go to 1993. I was actually watching news clips of this when it hit the mainstream media in 1993. They called it the end of an era because it was the time that something unthinkable happened. Superman died. This is the story. And, but this isn't the first time that a comic book uh, killed off its main character and then found some sort of miraculous way to sort of bring them back. But when the news of Superman's impending death hit mainstream media, it was publicized, as I said, as the end of the era. People lined up for blocks outside of comic book stores and waited for hours just to get a copy of the elusive death of Superman issue. Some because they were curious, like what happened, but a lot of people were like, hey, this is a good investment. This is going to be worth a lot someday. And it actually is. It's one of the most uh, sought-after comic books of all time. But in, in that story arc uh, that resulted in the death of Superman, a beast known as Doomsday, who had been in prison in an abyss far below the surface of the earth, breaks free, and begins carving just a swath of destruction that quickly endangers human lives. He's just going through everything all over the entire Midwest, just destroying anything that gets in his way. And one, there's another hero that tries to stop him and fails. And this is what he said. Hate, death, and bloodlust personified. That's what doomsday is. And later, when, when a boy and a woman see Superman in the fight of his life, the boy asks his mother about this uh, doomsday. And the, and the woman responds, I'd say he's the devil incarnate ushering in the end of the world. And faithfully, as the battle raged across the Midwest, the epicenter was Metropolis, this fiction, fictional place where Superman protected. But that's kind of where it was. And and Superman and he are fighting and their punches are sending shockwaves to the buildings and breaking glass. And finally, they're exhausted and they put everything they have into one last punch, both of them equally, every single thing they have into one last punch. And it ends it. Superman and Doomsday die. It was the killing blow for both of them. So in the end, Superman gives his life to protect the people and the city that he loves. And of course, after an elaborate funeral that spanned about two issues, uh, he would spend only a few days in the grave. And then miraculously, his Kryptonian body is restored. And it doesn't take a theology degree to see the parallels. Superman's battle with doomsday points to the passion of Christ. 
and that each chronicles the sacrificial death of its world savior. But what Superman did in a comic, Jesus did in real life. And the word doomsday, which is an old Anglo-Saxon word uh, that originally was synonymous with judgment day, in that sense, it represents God's wrath and judgment against humanity. But in a more vivid sense, doomsday personifies the monster lurking within each one of us, and that's sin, the most destructive force in the world. In either case, Jesus conquered the beast, but at the cost of his own life. Back to that verse in Romans, when the Bible says, when we were unable to help ourselves, at that moment of our need, Christ died for us. Although we were living against God, very few people will die to save the life of someone else, although perhaps for a good person, someone might possibly die. But God shows his great love for us in this way. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Jesus made the supreme sacrifice. He did what nobody else could do. When Adam and Eve wrestled first with sin and Satan in the garden, they lost. And every human being who has ever tried since, who has ever wrestled with sin, has lost just as badly. But he battled sin And Satan, on our behalf, he overcame death and saved us all. The bad news is that sin has a grip on our lives. And our perfect God in his perfect glory hates sin. His wrath is against it. And sin threatens to drag us down into judgment. But in Romans 5, 9, it says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? We are sinners. The wages of sin is death. We have fallen short of glory. But God's love is costly. He gave everything of himself for us. A love so willing to become us, a love so willing to work for us, and a love so willing to die for us. We cannot fathom the full measure of God's love if we cannot fathom how much we don't deserve it. It was costly, and it was undeserved. And because of my understanding of this love, a love that is costly, it's one of the reasons I despise with a passion this movie that my wife and I watched called Me Before You. So we, we want to watch romantic movies every once in a while. And so this one, the preview looked okay. And it was called Me Before You. Hannah knows. Oh, man, I talk so much about how much I hate this movie in class. But So Me Before You, I'm going to spoil it and I don't care, is <clears throat> about a, a guy who was a rich guy who was snobby and 
He ends up getting in an a accident and becomes a quadriplegic, which is to say he can't use his arms and legs anymore. He's paralyzed from the neck down. And he hates his life now. He can't do anything that he used to do. His body isn't functioning. What is the point of living? What's the point? I can't be who I was anymore. And so he resolves to go off to a country, I think Switzerland or something, somewhere where you can, where doctor-assisted suicide is okay. He, he's going to go there, and he's going to get put out of his misery. And sort of in a last-ditch effort to give him some semblance of hope, his parents hire this very innocent and, and, and cute young woman to watch over him sort of as a nurse. And man, she hates him because he is mean. But she keeps trying because once she needs the money, it pays really well. She keeps trying. And it breaks him in a different kind of way. And they fall in love. And he realized that I... I don't want to be that type of person anymore that I was. I was so self-absorbed and about myself. You've changed me. You've changed me. And she says, I don't care about this disability. I don't love you because of this. I love you despite it. I love you despite all of this that's happening. And he says, I love you too. That's the characters that we get. And then... He goes and he kills himself, nonetheless, right? What? <laughs> Why? Why? It's out of character. It doesn't make sense. He says, ah, but I, 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 I can't do the things anymore still. You're changed. You're different, aren't you? It was a love so selfish it brought new meaning to the, me before you. Is me? Me before you. That's what it was because she loved you. She loved you, and you're saying, it's not worth it. It's about me, and I can't be happy in the way that I want to be. It was so out of character, and it was so wrong because it was a love that said love needed because of something, not despite it. And, and not only that, but what a horrible message for all those quadriplegic people out there, which is to say, there's no hope. You could have everything. You could be rich and have all the care that you want and have somebody who loves you, but it's not worth it. Your quality of life is so bad, you might as well kill yourself. And literally, when I, when I went and read about this author who has no experience at all with, with uh, anybody who's quadriplegic, she said, ah, oh, you know what? I got inspired for this story when I saw that my grandma was sort of losing some of her faculties, and it really made me wonder about the quality of life. I was like, what, are you telling me that you just want your grandma to go kill herself because her quality of life is bad or something? It was so wacky, so wacky. It's not the kind of love that we know. You love despite, not because, and that is what Jesus demonstrated for us. While we were still sinners, he says, I love you not because of something you did for me, but despite all of that horrible stuff you did, despite every way you hurt me and you maligned me, I'm going to die for you anyways because I love you despite, not because. Jesus eating with sinners, for instance, is something that will just knock you flat if you understand it. 
Because it means no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, the distinction that Jesus recognizes is not between the good and the bad. The only distinction that divides humanity now is between the proud and the humble. That's the only one that counts. It's the only one that matters. Are you willing to say, Lord Jesus, I am not worthy. You don't owe me a good life. You don't. You owe me nothing but wrath. The minute that happens, he rushes in to eat with you. If you say, you know, God, you know, Jesus, you owe me a good life. The minute that happens, he says, I have not come for you. That's Christianity. That's the gospel. That's simple. And that is profound. When we finally realize how much we don't deserve it, that God's wrath burns against the sin that entangles us, and that we're going down. Hell is real and occupied, and that's what we deserve. When you understand the measure of your undeservedness, you can finally understand how costly the sacrifice is. You don't deserve it, yet he died for you anyway. Quite some years ago, one of my professors, one of my seminary professors, drove frantically to Seattle Hospital from Southern Oregon because he was next in line to receive a heart transplant. And three years before his visit to the hospital, he was given two years to live. His heart was increasingly less operable every day. And after multiple heart attacks and bypass surgery and plenty of medication, he was going to die unless he got a new heart. And he did. He got a new heart. But it wasn't until three days later that he found out to whom he owed the gratitude. The 14-year-old boy who had a brain injury in middle school football. And it was, I bet, difficult, one, for the parents to go through and, and become an organ donor like they did. But when he reflects on that situation, he is struck by the sobering reality that someone had to die so that he could live. And it was a boy, someone that when we, when we think about it, they didn't deserve it. In fact, he knew that he didn't deserve it. His life, in many ways, his decisions led up to him having a poor heart. He didn't deserve it. He certainly didn't deserve for a boy to die for him. But it's not too dissimilar from our Christian story. Someone had to die so that we could live. And we don't deserve it. But he did it anyways. That's the bad news. And it's the good news. And it's my encouragement that when you think about the gospel, you think about them together. Because you cannot have one without the other. Will you pray with me?
God, I just thank you so much for the opportunity these past weeks to share your wrath. What a weird thing to say. But you are an incredible God, and we cannot fathom how costly your love is for us if we don't understand the sacrifice, if we don't understand how much we don't deserve it, if we don't understand that your wrath is real and that it's against sin, God. And I pray that we would understand the bad news just as well as we understand the good news, God. Because it's important to understanding how profound your death was. And I pray that it would be a message we take to heart and that we would carry it in our lives as we deliver this message to others, God. And I pray that you would be with us today and forever. And we love you in your precious name. Amen.